the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. We got something completely different for you today. You're not going to hear from one guest, not two, but a bunch of them. Uh, this is a sampler episode. It is extremely difficult to get to the millions of podcasts out there, and we are drowning in a sea of content. And what I've done is I've pulled together some leaders and shows I trust, and I brought you a best of episode. So hang on. Uh, I want to hear what you think. And we want to thank our partners, Generis. You can get access to their free generosity resource and schedule your free coaching call by going to generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S.com slash carry. And by Convoy of Hope, you and your church can help provide relief to people suffering around the world from natural disasters. Just go to convoyofhope.org slash donate. So this is completely different. We are going to hear, I'm not even going to give you a full list because this is a typical episode length, but you are going to get so much wisdom. But some of the highlights uh, include hearing from Andy and Sandra Stanley. You're going to hear from Steve Stroop. You will hear from Andy Wood, Jenny Catron, Mona Delahook, Chick-fil-A executives David Farmer, Shane Benson, and a whole lot more. And what I've done is I hinted at the very beginning, and I've seen this done on one or two other shows, and I found it so, so helpful, is people are really struggling to keep up with all the content that's out there. So earlier this year, we started the Art of Leadership Podcast Network. And what that is, is just some podcasts. Some of them are new. Some of them have been going for a little while. And these are leaders we trust, shows we believe in, and we're bringing you a sampler from most of those in the Art of Leadership Network. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search Art of Leadership Network. And that's a little like jingle you hear at the beginning of this show, because obviously we're a part of it. But I want to run you through um, some of the people that you are going to be hearing from in this different episode. And then I would love to know whether you found this helpful. You can email me at carrie at My team's taking a few days off for the holidays, but we will get back to you in the new year. And I want to know, did you find this helpful? Are you enjoying this format? Because you're going to hear from some incredible leaders. And if you are, uh, we'll do it from time to time. Maybe once or twice a year, we'll uh, throw in a sampler episode from some of the other shows that we trust and are affiliated with. So I know a lot of you have challenges talking about money in the church. So I sat down recently with Jim Shepard. He is the principal at Generis. And I said, what are some of the hangups you hear in regards to money in the church? Here's what he had to say. Well, a lot of the hangups that I hear, Carrie, actually start with the pastor, the pastor who has some kind of a distorted view of money as it relates to the Bible or faith or his own practical experience or something that may have happened in another church, which then bleeds over into the congregation because they sense it, they recognize that something is off there, even if they don't realize exactly what it is. The other thing you hear from the congregation side is that you know, there are some churches that always talk about money. What that means is they're really not talking about it the right way. They're talking about, we always need your money. Um, there's a way to talk about money, but that's not it. And then there's the other side of, uh, uh, that the, con- the, the conversation from the, from the giver side, which is you only talk to me about money when you need some. And I would say to any pastor, if you're going to teach or talk about money only when you need some, you're making a mistake. Talk about money, the spiritual relationship with money at times when you don't need anything from your people. 
you'll see that go a long way with them. So as you know, overcoming the complicated relationship between church and money requires frequent communication and shifting the focus to the heart of the giver and away from the transaction. So how do you do that? Well, Jim Shepard and the team at Generis have created several free resources, all available to you at generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S, Genesis with an R, dot com slash C-A-R-E-Y. Additionally, they're offering our listeners a free one-on-one coaching call with a generosity expert, and this is going to help you privately and in a really helpful way explore the giving culture and unique DNA of your church with a generosity expert. So to take advantage of that, the coaching call and the free resources, it's all free. Go to generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S dot com slash carry. And check out Convoy of Hope. They are doing incredible stuff around the world. I love those guys. They've helped over 100,000 individuals already in the Ukraine and surrounding countries. They are active in the Caribbean whenever a storm hits and there's more and more of those. And of course, they're on the ground in America and around the world as well. When you donate to Convoy of Hope, you release food, hygiene supplies, feminine supplies, baby supplies, medical supplies, blankets, bedding, clothing, and a lot more. To help, visit convoyofhope.org donate. So let's get into a little bit of what you're going to hear, and I'm going to deal with this in sequence. So you're going to hear from Leaders in Living Rooms with Sean Morgan. Sean is a good friend, and he is part of the Ascent Leader. He is a speaker with a national reputation as a catalyst of fresh vision. You'll also hear from the Smart Family Podcast. This is hosted by my favorite podcast host ever, my wife, Tony Newhoff, and her co-host, our good friend, Rob Meter, Dr. Rob Meter. Uh, brings a pediatrician's perspective. They're going to interview Mona Delahook. Tony has extensive experience as a pharmacist, as a lawyer, and a church leader. And I think you're going to enjoy that conversation, particularly those of you who are parents. Then you will hear from the conversation with Adam Weber. Adam is the founder and one of the pastors at a multi-site church in Sioux Falls called Embrace. Following that, Brad Lominick with the H3 Leadership Podcast. He is a longtime leader of Catalyst Conference and the author of several best-selling books. And then the new pastor of Saddleback, Andy Wood, is part of the podcast network here at the Art of Leadership Network as well. And he is going to bring you an excerpt from the Unfair Advantage podcast with Steve Stroop, who's going to interview. You'll hear a snippet of that. Then we will change to uh, Jenny Catron. Jenny is the founder of the Foresight Group. She's going to do some teaching. Then Kevin Jennings will show up, and he is going to interview Shane Benson and David Farmer from Chick-fil-A and talk about, uh, well, a lot of great leadership stuff. And then finally, we'll wrap up with Win Today with Christopher Cook. Chris is a coach and speaker who serves wellness-minded men and women, uh, particularly in the church space. So you're going to get a sampler from all eight of those shows, and you can find them in the Art of Leadership Network. You're probably going to discover some that you really like, and then you can subscribe. And well, you know what to do beyond that. So let's get started with the sampler episode. Here we go. The Art of Leadership Network. Hey, podcasters, a huge shout out to Carrie and the Art of Leadership Network. We're excited to have the Leaders in Living Rooms podcast clip on the show with you today. Before I tee up the clip, I just want to talk a little bit about the Leaders in Living Rooms podcast. This podcast was designed to share living room conversations that I was privileged to have with world-class leaders in the cohorts that we provide at theascentleader.org. And I wanted to uh, just recognize that there were so many rich sides to leadership that only happen in conversation. 
They don't happen in keynote addresses or at conferences. They happen sitting around a living room, sitting around a fire pit. And I was privileged to sit in those environments, and I wanted to share that with the Leaders in Living Rooms podcast, which is primarily oriented around leaders who are in transition, church leaders who are in leadership transitions. And today we have a clip from episode 53 of Leaders in Living Rooms with Jonathan and Lindsay Hansen, pastors at Hills Church. Hills.Church is uh, their website in the greater Sacramento area, and they had an incredible leadership journey through the leadership transition of this church about five years ago. And Jonathan and Lindsay share some amazing insights to their leadership, where they got started with a huge amount of energy and adrenaline and realized they never had any rest before they began the leadership journey there. They talk about not developing lives, a real true life rhythm in and out of ministry. And they they did not have lives outside of the ministry that was really at the time consuming 24-7 and how they built in some hedges and some boundaries there and how they began to just grow in to their leadership acumen. Um, there's a quote in there where they say, we weren't we weren't even sure we were allowed to do certain things or make certain decisions. And so they just jumped in. This clip is going to really paint a picture for the incredible leaders they are and what God is doing through them at Hills Church. We're pleased to share this with you. I want to encourage you to follow us at Leaders in Living Rooms on our podcast, like, and subscribe. We hope it serves you in your journey as a leader. Here we go. The pain was enough that we were yes. willing to take that plunge. To, what tr- would, yeah. to trust, yeah. To trust. So, Lindsay, what Jonathan said, you were the one that named it, right? And I always say it's one of the most difficult things in leadership is to name the problem because you will never solve a problem you aren't willing to name, right? right. Whether you're yeah. afraid of it or confused or whatever, you're, it's not going to get solved unless it gets named. So you named it. Was that the first time you named it? Had you processed it with somebody um, or did it just leak out in the moment? Yeah, no, I think um, it was so funny. You were saying, you know, you didn't want to disappoint. We didn't want to disappoint anyone, but also we weren't sure if we were allowed to ask for what we needed in that moment. We weren't sure, you know, did we have permission um, as senior pastors to go to your board and say, you know, this is just really where we're at. Can we be honest? Or is there enough protection around us to where we could be authentic and honest with where we were at? And I was talking with a mentor one day and, um, I had processed with her the move. I had processed with her my role and transition within the church and women's ministry. And, you know, she just always told me, you know, Lindsay, just don't sacrifice your family on the altar of ministry. She just said, don't, you know, it's not worth it. You know, your family is the most important thing. And, and that always stuck with me. And I think um, when I realized, man, things in our family were breaking down because the church was becoming so all-consuming for us, mm-hmm. we just realized, you know, I just realized, you know, whether we are given permission or not, um, we have to do this for the sake of our marriage. We have to do this for the sake of our children, for our family, um, and really for the sake of the church, because your yeah. church is only going to thrive and prosper as much as you are willing to name the things that aren't going well and be able to work through them. And so, um, I, you know, through a lot of prayer, a lot of um, advice from my mentor, I mean, I really kind of came to that decision. Like, we we got to speak it out. We've got to name it. Um, 
And, and then we need to entrust ourselves really to leadership mm-hmm. and, and let, you know, the, these people that we really felt like we could trust ourselves to, um, just guide us and direct us maybe along some healthy paths. So that was kind of how it came about. Yeah. Thank you for talking about the, the church in all this, because I feel like that expectation of you've got it all together is what's impeding the growth of the church because no church will grow beyond its pastor. So the things that you guys aren't willing to do in yourselves, your church will never advance on because you're not going to teach on it as deep if you haven't been transformed there. So it really is the governor on the engine of your church, but yet there's this pressure to Mm. outwardly not have these problems. And so it's this catch 22, you're Mm. stuck in the middle, but it ultimately really is about Christ's bride. You're just stewarding a leadership role. You're just stewarding influence of making and growing disciples. And sometimes it means doing hard heart work on your own. So I remember talking about that a little bit. Like yeah. it, Jonathan at some point had asked me for some advice and I said, I think you I think you have to be comfortable talking about this with your elders and they're either going to embrace it and help you guys through it and and grow with you and that will mean the church mm-hmm. has a brighter future or they're going to go no we only want happy perfect people here. And so what a joy. So talk yeah. to us. So, so what, what happened there and, and how did God use? Yeah. I mean, I think we can, we can honestly say we wouldn't still be here today if there had not been that support from the board just to say, Hey, we're, we're going to walk with you guys through this. This has been a lot. You know, mm-hmm. we've, we've both learned a lot in this first year and we're in this with you for the long haul. And, and we felt the same way. And, you know, we knew enough at that point to realize, um, I think both sides knew enough at that point to realize this was a good fit. We want to make this work. Things, you know, were really going phenomenal at the church. And we had been through some hard, you know, leadership decision type stuff where, you know, the the board had to step back into more of a board role where they're not running all the decisions of the church. We had been through some challenges there, but come out the other side. Um, I was starting to learn more of who I was as a leader, but I think... It, it really was that that was a defining moment early on for us. I mean, now over three and a half years ago that helped us understand, okay, man, we can, we can first entrust ourselves to Jesus in this process, but also to the people that Jesus has put in leadership over us, um, which is the board. And I've, I've just always said, man, I, ne- I never want to be a leader. We never want to be leaders outside of accountability and authority. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to be under authority. And I think God establishes that within the local church, uh, you know, on purpose. And so, but a lot of people, it's it's still hard to come under that. It's still hard to be vulnerable and to step into that. Um, but yeah, I think even back to what, you know, you were, you were asking, you know, it took you four and a half years to know who you are and what you need and what you need to ask for. I think so much of that was one being first time leaders in this in this place, not knowing what you can say yes to or no to. And then I I think for me at least, I can say as a as a young leader, as a young senior pastor, you kind of feel like you you do have to jump into everything. 
you feel like, oh, I've, I, I know how to do that better. I need, to, I need to get my hands involved in that. I need to make sure this is going this way. Or uh, I can see that that ministry really doesn't need to be happening anymore. We need to shut that one down. And so, of course, I'm, I'm kind of like a bull in a china shop, getting my hands into everything, probably making way too many big decisions way too fast, not having enough time to discern that, wow, this church is, is more in a place of pain and instead of just a ton of passion and vision and let's take the hill, there probably needed to be a season of just learning and loving and listening, a longer season of that before we jumped into all the other things. But, you know, in hindsight, your vision's 2020 and you get all that. Um, but I think now it's taken us four and a half years to understand, oh, here's our lane. Let's stay in that lane and things are going to go better, you know, not only in terms of our emotional health, our longevity, our stamina, if we don't get into everything else. Mm. And this is actually what we're good at. We're not really good at those things anyways, I, you know. And so it just took time to figure those things out. The Art of Leadership Network. Hi, I'm Dr. Rob Meter. And I'm Tony Newhoff. And we are co-hosts of the Smart Family Podcast. Hey, you want to relax and enjoy being home, don't you? But do you ever feel like being home just isn't what you thought it would be? Mm -hmm. Or there's so much relationship and parenting advice to wade through. How do you move from feeling overwhelmed by a problem at home to feeling satisfied with the progress you've made? We started the Smart Family Podcast with you in mind. Here you'll find high-quality practical advice from the experts to help you strengthen your marriage and boost your parenting to the next level. We'll do the legwork for you so you can focus on your next step toward thriving at home. Find us on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to follow the show. It's our aim to help you love being home. Hmm. So to help you get a sense of what the show is about, we want to bring you this excerpt from our conversation with Dr. Mona Delahook. She's a best-selling author and child psychologist whose paradigm-shifting model offers a new way of understanding emotional and behavioral challenges in children. Enjoy. The way we are trained in mental health in child psychology is to look at it, look at a checklist. If a child meets a checklist of symptoms, we think, uh-oh, there's a disorder causing the behavior. But mm -hmm. no, labels don't cause behaviors. Yeah. Adaptive functioning causes behaviors. So here's the deal. It's not that a child is necessarily trying to communicate consciously or intentionally. It's that the child's um, body is expressing a behavior. Again, say a child's hitting or kicking or spitting. Um, the child is, there's are different types of behaviors that we'll probably get into. But what I see again is an adaptive response to, to something inside the child's body. And it's not always a child planning it ahead of time in order to communicate something. There's a difference and we'll unpack that if you want. So Mona, maybe a good place to start would be with an analogy that you draw to challenging behaviors like the ones you mentioned, the kicking, the spitting, um, being the tip of the iceberg. Can you explain what you mean by that analogy? Well, I was when I was writing my book, I was trying to think of um, what's, what's an analogy like that would make sense to people. And, um, around the same time I had my first visit to Alaska and I saw an iceberg and, mm. and then they told us that, that the, the big chunk of ice is like 90% bigger underneath. 
And so the tip is what you see. And I'm like, okay, this is what behaviors are like. Behaviors are like the tip of the iceberg. It's what we see. It's the obvious thing that we see. And for most of us, we use the behavior as the guide as, okay, we'll just take this behavior and manage the behavior. This is the legacy from something called behavior theory, that behaviors are uh, uh, fair game for, for us to just work on on the surface level. But that's the key. Behaviors uh, on the tip of the, as seen by the tip of the iceberg, are only signals. They're signals that something deeper is going on and that uh, well, under the waterline, you have all the causes, the triggers, the uh, pieces um, of, of functioning, like the body, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just say here's one piece under the tip of the iceberg for, for some children and for some adults, frankly, and that would be the lack of deep, see- deep sleep cycling. Some children who've had really bad sleep for several days or maybe even more have behavioral outbursts that are really intense. So the behavior in that case, the tip of the iceberg is the be- is uh, the child yelling or screaming or trying or taking something from another child. But the under the waterline, under that big chunk of ice is a lack of deep sleep cycling. So there are millions of causes under the surface of what we can't see. And that's where we want to focus our attention to help children. Right. So you're saying we have to be careful that we don't oversimplify things too much by saying, well, that's behavior is, you know, just from what it looks like on the surface, because behind every story is a very complicated, Mm. deeper story that could be a long time in the making, really, right? This is not just an immediate response to an immediate situation. This has been modified by potentially years of experiences. Beautifully said. Absolutely. From the moment we're born, uh, probably even prenatally, our our subconscious memories, our our procedural memories build in these these systems that um, inform our behaviors. So years and years, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now, Mona, you do have, um, you do mention a lot, a structure or a way of looking at behavior uh, called polyvagal theory. And um, I have a strange feeling that when I throw that word out there, a lot of parents are going like, poly what? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and, I, and, I, and I was, I said the same thing too, when I first read about it, yeah. um, but it, it does uh, represent a nice way of thinking about behaviors, how to escalate and de-escalate and how, you know, uh, and, and so you describe it and you use a color-coded system. And I'm wondering just as a way of background, maybe, maybe you can summarize this in a nutshell, exactly what polyvagal theory is and why it applies to what we're talking about today. Yes. Yes. So, right. And to honestly, um, a lot of people, when you start to talk about neuroscience or polyvagal or autonomic, you know, the autonomic nervous system, it's people's <laughs> eyes glaze over and they're like, no, don't. <laughs> and so, um, and I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm a, I'm a, uh, you know, a child psychologist who translates le- neuroscience. So just let mm-hmm. me give you the most basic idea, because once I studied the polyvagal theory um, and it's, uh, it was developed by Dr. Stephen Porges, um, a, a neuroscientist, psychologist, researcher, very kind man. 
whom I had the good fortune of um, meeting through professional channels uh, years ago, basically this theory is a way of understanding the nervous system. Okay. Mm -hmm. We have a nervous system. One of the systems is called the autonomic nervous system. And, and it kind of is what directs our, um, our behaviors, our emotions. It creates the, the uh, platform for how the information that we get in through our bodies, right? Through our senses, how that gets processed from the body to the brain and from the brain back down to the body. It's a, it's called bi-directional because, you know, we get information through our, or, or sense uh, systems and then it comes up to the brain. Then the brain decides, okay, I'm going to send down the instructions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so when it sends down the instructions, it, uh, in a in, in this model of of functioning, and of course it's a model. It's 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 evolving, right? So, but this model sends instructions down through three main pathway uh, systems that I call pathways, and we name them colors of the nervous system, and they result in predictable behaviors in children and in adults. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you want me to, I can briefly go over the three main ones. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Like, cause you, you described the blue, red and green pathway yeah. and green being the ideal one we'd like to see our kids in. So <laughs> maybe start by describing that one and, and kind of go from there. Yeah. The green is the, is called the social engagement system. And mm-hmm. in this theory, it's the, it's, it's the um, kind of the, when humans feel safe, when we feel like we are calm and, and not, in any sort of threat, we think of it as your body kind of having a good homeostasis, you know, you're just feeling just right. And of course, parents love it when their kids are paying attention and following directions and being happy and playing and all that. That's when we're in the the green state, the ventral vagals, the technical term pathway of the nervous system, but let's, I call it the green pathway. And uh, this, again, the, the requirement for the green pathway is that the human body and brain are detecting safety. And that means um, from the inside, from the inside of the body and from the outside and from the environment. And the green is, is, yeah, it's wonderful. However, we know we're not robots. So nobody's always in the green. Nobody's always calm. If we were, we'd be dead. Because we have to react to threat, right? We have to react to a car that's moving really fast and might, we have to jump out of the way if the car comes too close. When we do something like that, our, we have a a system called neuroception that is a subconscious detection of threat and safety. And it directs our nervous system into one of two other pathways. The red pathway, which is known as the sympathetic nervous system, you might you're, you might know it as the fight or flight system, right? Mm-hmm. It creates um, fast movement and action to keep us safe. This is where we might see a child out of the blue hit their sibling or throw a, a bowl of cereal across the room, right? <laughs> it looks like it's out of the blue, but it's not. There, something has shifted in their nervous system. That's the red pathway. So we all cycle from the green to the red when it's needed. And then the third one is the blue pathway. Um, and that one is happens 
less frequently, fortunately, but we need to be watching out for that. And that is when human beings feel the sense of threat and um, they, they start to disconnect and they lose hope. And that's when they kind of can, you can be immobilized. So that's when a child or, or an adult, you know, these are all human, their pathways. They're not just for children um, can begin to uh, pull away, not talk, not smile and not interact. If that happens to your child and it lasts for many days or weeks, definitely um, contact your pediatrician or your, mm-hmm. or, or a health provider. The Art of Leadership Network. Hey friends, my name is Adam Weber and I host a weekly podcast called The Conversation where each week in 28 minutes, our hope is if you're trying to figure out how to make a difference with your life or you're walking through an unpretty part of being human, we want you to know that you are not alone. In these conversations, we talk about what does it look like to actually follow Jesus. Each week, my guests are leaders, musicians, pastors, NFL athletes are authors who are at the very top of their game. And we talk about things like leadership, depression and mental health, parenting and the joys and hard times in life. Each week, I promise you will always walk away with practical steps that you can take that will improve your actual life. Just to tell you a little bit about myself, I started a church called Embrace here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota when I was 24 years old. This past year, I turned 40. I still cannot believe I'm 40, but I'm an author of two books. More importantly, I'm a husband and a dad of four kids. When I'm not cheering for the great Cincinnati Bengals, I'm driving my 1936 Chevy or I'm using my amazing Milwaukee leaf blower. That is not an ad, by the way. It's pretty much just the best thing ever. But before we get into today's conversation, I just want to share a quick leadership thought with you. And it's this. Sometimes the smallest things make the biggest difference. Again, sometimes the smallest things make the biggest difference. Oftentimes, I'll just have this tiny thought or idea in my gut. If I just do this one tiny thing in this message series, if I just do this one small thing with this event as a church, if I if I just do this one tiny thing, if I go out of my way to intentionally bless this person, I feel like it will make the biggest difference. Difference. Now, it's not always true, but genuinely, I look back at the 16 years I've been a pastor. More than that, I look back at my life and I can't tell you the impact that these tiny little things have had, not just for myself, but also for my church and more importantly for others. With this, though, a couple of things that I need to mention. I don't think I'm the only one who gets these little tiny ideas. I think we all do. The difference is I think most people brush them off. I think most people don't follow through with them. Most people, for whatever reason, convince themselves that these things are not that big of a deal, but they are. Another thing, if you are a Jesus follower, I would argue that these tiny things don't come from us. They come from the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so my encouragement to you, the next time you get a tiny thought or an idea, go for it. Follow through with it because sometimes the smallest things make the biggest difference. I hope this leadership thought encourages you. On my podcast, I share a quick leadership thought on a regular basis. Well, friends, today I am so stoked to share a part of my recent conversation with Andy Stanley and his wife, Sandra. If you don't know, Andy is a pastor at an amazing church called North Point in Atlanta, Georgia, and he's a leader that I look up to and respect so much. But in today's episode, Andy and Sandra share 
so much wisdom specifically about parenting. They share about what's guided them and their parenting decisions. That relationship is always more important than behavior. We also discussed as a pastor or leader how to parent your own kids well. If you have a position where it feels like other people are watching you and your kids. They also share so candidly how they've approached their own kids' faith questions and doubts. On that note, as always, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation. Your children may hit a season where they begin to doubt their faith, but never do anything that would cause them to doubt that you are that you fully embrace your faith. Because again, what is modeled and the foundation that we lay, uh, and, and it's what you said a minute ago, Adam, it, it's such a desire for the parent. Um, just live a life in such a way that they may doubt what you believe, but don't give them any excuse to doubt that you believe what you believe. And um, that is tricky. But once again, when relational integrity is the win, and when um, when parenting toward the relationship is is the it, that impacts how a parent responds when a child hits a bump in their own faith journey. And as we say in the book, hey, you loved your child before they believed anything. Yeah. So the fact that they quit believing something should never be an impediment to your love and acceptance of your child because you loved and accepted them before they believed anything. That's right. But again, all this goes back to how do I maintain relationship regardless even of where your child is on the faith spectrum. Yep. Garrett, our middle son, recently came back to us. We were having a conversation one night over dinner. Really about the book. Yeah. uh, yeah, uh, Yeah, we were talking about the parenting book. And he said, you know what, Dad, one of the things that I remember most that made a deep impact on me was when I was in high school, you looked at me and and at all of us, all three of us, and you said, if any of you ever decide to abandon your faith, I'm going with you. And he didn't mean I'm going to abandon my faith, too. He meant our relationship is going to be exactly the same, no matter what you choose. And Garrett said, you know, it just made me in times where I think I might have maybe moved in a different direction. I just, there, there's something about, and you know, I'm a mom, so I can say this, there's something about a dad-son relationship that if they believe that you are with them no matter what, there is a strength there and there is a confidence there that they can't get any other place. And so that's a that was a powerful reminder to us of what Andy was just saying. Yeah, I just wanted them to know, hey, I, this relationship is not contingent on a shared faith system. It is, it is deeper and it's stronger. Though that's that. very important yeah. to us. <laughs> and again, you, you, you think, wait a minute, the pastor's yeah. saying this. Absolutely, because yes. I loved my children before they believed anything. So why would that ever change? Right. That's good. Any specific advice, and we kind of have all kinds of listeners, because so this could apply to a, a CEO's kid, um, but specifically as a pastor's kid, any advice around parenting or what? unique things that brings about. Again, that could be a pastor who's listening or a CEO or just a a physician who's listening. Any like specific wisdom for that? You know, I think I think this is true for all parents, but particularly pastors, parents, or people who are have some sort of major platform of influence. In our parenting, we tend to um I think naturally in our just our human nature, we tend to um 
fear that our kids might embarrass us somehow because the you know because we're in a fishbowl a little bit more than the average parent is and so in, especially in in parenting world and Andy was great at this I was terrible at it I would want to put my finger in somebody's face and say do you know what your behavior is going to do to your father's reputation and do you know and <laughs> leave them all bloody on the floor but Andy was so great at dialing that back and making them feel like they are far more important than his reputation. And I just think if you are a person with a platform of influence, you have to figure out how to rally around that idea. It's so important Yeah, for the relationship. Maintaining your relationship, maintaining your, your reputation through your children is not it. If that becomes it, that becomes a wedge. That is a, that's a, that's a, that's a lose. That's, that's not a win. And again, really, and in the book, I share an illustration we don't have time to talk about today. I experienced this with my dad when I was in the eighth grade and it was so dynamic and it was so emotionally powerful to this day. I can still remember what he said in that moment. And I realized where I stood in relationship to his reputation. And I realized that I was more important to him than his reputation. And I still remember that conversation. So it is so important because our egos, oh my goodness, our egos get so, in fact, real quick, we, our daughter just had a baby, our first grandchild, and she just took little Haven to the pediatrician for the first time. And she said when she got there, Haven peed all over the pediatrician. And Allie said, I found myself apologizing as if I had peed all over <laughs> pediatrician. And I said, welcome to the world of parenting. Everything your child does is, you feel such, like it's a reflection. is such a reflection on you. It is difficult to differentiate enough to let them, you know, kind of stand alone in terms of their behavior and not to feel like you've got to protect your own reputation. So it begins early. Yeah. I, the other day I had a neighbor, a uh, couple that uh, doesn't have children, but they had a dog and their dog was just being a punk ended up running on our front lawn all over the place. And they were so embarrassed. And I thought to myself, oh, dear Lord, if parenting's ever in the future, just wait wait for that moment. Yeah. Because <laughs> so, you can yeah, tell, we're, have, so yeah. sorry, yeah. we're so sorry. We're so sorry. We're so I'm yeah. like, you don't have to be sorry. I was like, when your kid runs yeah. butt yeah. naked through Target, like, yeah. come, come back and talk to me. Last yeah. question I have, <laughs> is there anything that you wish you could go back, uh, you know, if when your kids were middle schoolers or even little tykes, like, go back, gosh, if I could tell myself one thing about parenting, it would be. Sandra kind of talked about one with the, yeah. the drive toward efficiency. Mine, um, I, I and, and most parents do this, and so it's, I, I'm not excusing it, but I would just get so wound up around stuff that just doesn't matter, especially you know, don't get things too dirty and don't think, get, get things too messy and don't, you know, touch this and don't put your fingers on. And part of the problem, I don't know how our kids turned out so well. We're both Enneagram ones. So right. it, it doesn't even look like anyone lives in our home. Okay. <laughs> I mean, everything is so nice and organized. And so we're so, we so lean in that direction. I wish I would have just had chilled, down chilled a little. Yeah. out because that stuff does not matter. And I, I'm, I'm so grateful that it didn't do any more damage yeah. than yeah. Then maybe it did. So I think the other one I would say is I wish that we knew then what we know now about temperament. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. we um, we were doing a foster care continuing ed thing that we had to do for to keep our license active to foster. And this lady came in and talked about the four temperaments. And she ended up writing a book about it called I Said This, You Said, You Heard That. Oh, so Kathleen, good. Yeah, know. our staff went so through good. it. 
So she came. Oh yeah, isn't it great? Right. The colors, yeah. So yeah. we re- we figured out that Garrett, our middle son, was yellow, and Andy and I are both kind of very. We got a lot of blue going on between the two of us, and Garrett was yellow. So part of our parenting was always going, "Okay, Garrett, be quiet. Okay, sit down. Okay, stop. Okay, why are you doing that? Okay, don't do that." You know, there was all of that all the time with him, and so we later set, set, have said multiple times to Garrett, Garrett, we're so sorry right. that we didn't just lean into who God made you to be more than we did. And finally, after we had apologized to him about a thousand times, he said, okay, look, you can stop apologizing because I have met some yellows who their parents should have dialed them back. <laughs> I don't even like them. And so he said, I'm a little bit appreciative that y'all didn't let me just go all full in yellow that you dialed me back just a little bit. So but I do wish, looking back, yeah. that we had had a little more understanding around that whole temperament thing, because I think it would have it would have just um, changed our approaches on a few. Things. Where we got it right with him is I didn't have the temperament language, but I knew it was important that he have permission to say what he needed to say to me, the way he wanted to say it, the volume he chose, and the words he chose, even if it meant being disrespectful to me. No one was allowed to be disrespectful to Sandra. We only had two rules in our home. We talk about this a lot in the book. This is worth the price of the book, just the two rules. And one of the rules was honor mom, not obey, honor mom. You don't have to honor dad, but you honor mom. So I created the space for Garrett to say what needed to be said to me any way he wanted to say it. And Sandra would say, I'd be like, no, oh no. <laughs> you, why do you let him talk to you that way? And I'm like, because- he needs this to talk. Needs this to is how he needs to talk. Yeah. And we're to try to shut that down as to parent against the way he's wired. But Andy would this never reciprocate that volume. Andy would just take it. And Garrett would just, you know, try to bait him into a little bit of a fight or something occasionally. <laughs> and Andy would just be so calm. And then it would just diffuse the situation. He handled it beautifully. The most, the story I've never shared anywhere, but in the book, um, has to do with that. And I'll just tease it up this way. There is a hole in the sheetrock in one of the rooms in our homes that we have never repaired that we feel like is a, the icon for our family about that dynamic of how far um, I was willing for that to go in order to maintain not control, but relationship um, with Garrett, who's passionate. And his passion, of course, is serving him so well as an adult in the business he's in. Um, And you just don't want to parent it out of them. And yet, obviously, there are parameters. And I... uh, he gave me permission to share that story because he said, no, you're exactly right. This is this is the kind of thing parents need to understand. The Art of Leadership Network. Hey, friends, Brad Lominick here. I'm the host of the H3 Leadership Podcast, h3leadership.com, h3leadership.com. We are now about 130 episodes in, all kinds of different voices, leaders, thought leaders, speakers, etc. The theme of my podcast is curating the best for leaders to stay in the know, curating the best for leaders to stay in the know. On every episode, I try to give links, recommendations, resource, other podcasts to listen to, different books, videos, etc. to keep you in the know. And I feel like my job is to curate, to cut through the noise and help you know what you need to listen to, what you need to read, what you need to check out. So I'd love to have you join in in this community. We publish a new podcast every week. Once a week, there's a new podcast that comes out. And here's a sample. Every month, I do a top 10 leadership list with different links. So we're going to hear the most recent version of the top 10 leadership list, along with 
a clip from a recent conversation with Andy Stanley, Andy talking about what he wants to say to leaders right now. So enjoy. Again, I would love for you to subscribe, jump in, get connected, h3leadership.com, or you can search wherever you get your podcast for H3 Leadership with Brad Lominick. Thanks so much. October, top 10 leadership list, even though we're in the first week of November. A little behind here on the top 10 leadership list. All the links will be in the show notes, h3leadership.com, h3leadership.com. A couple of podcasts for you. The Candace Cameron BRA podcast, brand new from Candace. She's a uh, she's an actress. She's on the Hallmark Channel, was, uh, was a, a childhood actress. Check that out. Really good stuff. Rule of Life. This is a new podcast from John Mark Comer and Practicing the Way, Rule of Life. And then a third one, I got to give you a third one while we're here. Managing Leadership Anxiety. This is from Steve Cuss. Really good stuff there. So there you go, podcast. A couple of conferences for you. I mentioned Impact Leadership Conference coming up December 7th, free virtual event with John Maxwell and others. Check that out. Link is in the show notes, h3leadership.com, and also Passion Conference 2023, both in Dallas and Atlanta. This is uh, college students, 18 to 25-year-olds. You're going to want to be there or send some of your college students Again, Passion 2023. Articles, a couple articles for you. The new sports bar, Explain. This is from The Hustle. And then uh, Chick-fil-A is, of course, the current latest survey from Piper Jaffrey. All the teenagers today, this is their favorite restaurant chain. This is on CNBC. But are we surprised that Chick-fil-A is a teenager's favorite restaurant chain? Starbucks, number two, but a long number two from Chick-fil-A. Uh, music, a couple of new albums, Third Day, the 25th Anniversary Edition from Third Day, Third Day, 25th Anniversary Edition, anniversary edition. and also The Stories I Tell Myself, brand new album from Matt Marr. Matt Marr, The Stories I Tell Myself, so check those out. And then books, The Intentional Father from John Tyson. This is really good stuff. If you're a, if you're a dad, get some, uh, some teenage sons, The Intentional Father is going to help you. And then uh, had Patrick Clincioni on a couple episodes ago talking about the six types of working genius, his new book. This is a recommendation for October. So there you go, the October top 10 leadership list. All the links will be in the show notes, h3leadership.com. What other challenge or, or encouragement would you give to leaders right now? You know, just in general, um, that's a big question, but just love to give you room to, to encourage leaders knowing yeah. kind of where we sit right now in culture and this season? Well, I've, I've talked about this before, but I, 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 it just bears repeating because every time I say it, it reminds me in times of uncertainty, people want certainty and we cannot provide certainty. The next best thing to certainty is clarity. So we can't provide certainty and the pastors who misuse their scripture and misuse their position to promise certainty, they're lying. You cannot provide certainty. You can only provide clarity. And the political leaders, I mean, that's how you get elected. You you promise certainty. If you elect me, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's not going to happen. Nope. You, 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 can't, you can't provide certainty. So the best thing, the next best thing, the thing that actually feels like certainty is clarity. So I say to leaders constantly, look, be honest with your folks, whether it's in business or at church, wherever it is, be absolutely honest. Hey, I don't have an answer to that. We're going to figure it out. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but we're going to figure it out. In the meantime, here's what we are going to do. Here's what we know. Here's what we're going to do. And then after that, 
we're going to regroup and and um again leading our churches you know through 2020 and half of 2021 and you know making all the changes we did i i just learned i i just need to camp out on clarity because i can't provide certainty but clarity is the next best thing and it's something that um every leader can provide if they you know if they're if they're going to lead so that's it's kind of a, i'm a broken record on that these days but I, i'm really convinced that's that's uh that's the answer the Art of Leadership Network. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Unfair Advantage Podcast for Church Planters. My name is Andy Wood, and I'll be your host. And today we're going to jump into our fourth episode in the Unfair Advantage repertoire. You're going to hear from my mentor, Pastor Steve Stroop. He was the founding pastor of Lake Point Church just outside of Dallas. Uh, I would venture to say that Steve is one of the wisest people I've ever met in my entire life. Steve has walked through our church planting process with us. In the beginning, we were on phone calls monthly. Now it's a little different. And these days, it's a lot more of these like short 10, 15 minute conversations. But I've gained so much through my relationship with Steve. And you're going to hear that in this conversation. You're going to hear his wisdom, his strategy, his thinking, how he uh, breaks down a vision into process and steps. And for a lot of church planters, I don't know if you've noticed this, but a lot of church planters, uh, they got vision, but sometimes strategy is harder to come by. And this conversation is going to help you gain a strategy really that uh, gives you the steps to, to launch a church. And so I think you're going to be encouraged and challenged and equipped by this conversation. One of the most helpful co concepts that you drilled into me on many of our coaching calls early when we planted our church, I would I'd be like, well, I don't know if we're making progress. And I remember you saying a lot in the first year, you won't know you're making how much progress you're making until you get to year two. And that concept of the growth gap, not being a percentage growth gap, but a numerical uh, growth gap. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that mindset is so important for a church planter to embrace? Yeah, and every environment's different, but most, most churches are going to have one or two seasons where the bottom drops out. For Texas, it's the summer. You know, people disappear in the summer. They want to go on vacation. They want to go someplace it's cooler, or at least where they can take more clothes off for the heat. And so for you to compare your attendance as a church planner in May to June, well, you know, somebody's going to have to talk you off the ledge because things, you know, went down. Well, uh, you don't want to compare May to June. You want to compare June to a year ago, June. And that's what I call the growth gap is, is how much more are we running today than we were the same month, the same season as we were last year. And that's the true sense of growth. And so a first year church planner, he doesn't know or she doesn't know how good they're doing until they're at least one year out. And then I, I want to look at that growth gap. And if I'm running, say, 50 more people, numerical, not percentage, I've always said to you, if you're running two people this year, and you're running four people next year, you didn't grow by 100%, you grew by two people. And because statistics or percentages rather will lie to you. But the growth gap is, is and, and when I look at it is if I'm running 50 more in June this year than June last year, and then if I'm running 50 more or maybe even 49 or 51 more in July than I was a year ago in July, well, I've got a growth gap that's pretty constant. And I know that if last year I was running 200, and my growth gap in June and July is 50, then I'm probably going to have a growth gap of 50 in September. And, and then I already know several months in advance that I'm going to need to add a second service because if my growth gap remains the same, and it usually does, 
then, then I know when I'm going to run out of parking, when I'm going to run out of seats, uh, there, there's a growth gap in attendance. There's also a growth gap in a number of baptisms, a growth gap in your finances, and you can do a better job of projecting the future than the snapshot of this week versus last week. I hate it when church planners say, oh, we were down $10,000 this week from the week before. Yeah, because the week before was payday. Mm -hmm. You don't compare week to week. You compare month to month. People don't get paid by the week. They get paid by the month. And you need to compare not only this month to another month, but you really ought to be comparing this month to a year ago, the same month, because people get their bonuses or people get their raises at a certain time. Then people get the IRS, uh, you know, rebate at a certain time of year. And so you always want to look in a, in a broader sense. And then I also say that nothing is a pattern until it happens three times in a row. And so you may have an aberration of a gust on a particular weekend of a certain amount, but that doesn't mean that you're going to have that kind of growth every week. Uh, or every week in that month, that's going to be your growth gap. You want to look for patterns, and patterns usually start showing up about the third time. The Art of Leadership Network. Hi, I'm Jenny Catron, founder and CEO of The Foresight Group and host of the Lead Culture Podcast, where we're committed to cultivating healthy leaders and thriving teams. Your leadership journey can become less overwhelming and more fulfilling. And I want to help you lead yourself well so you can lead others better. This episode, Building an Extraordinary Team Culture, offers strategies to help you create a healthy, authentic, and thriving team culture. If you're curious about leading a healthy team culture, be sure to check out our website, getforesight.com. That's the word get, G-E-T, the number four, and the word site, S-I-G-H-T, dot com to take our free culture blind spot assessment. And while you're there, you can also discover other resources, including more great podcast episodes to equip you to keep leading well. How to build an extraordinary team culture. The how is always the hardest part, isn't it? I'm guessing that you're probably not arguing against having great culture, because who doesn't want to be a part of a great team, right? But the how is where we get serious about this culture thing. And let me warn you, it's not quick or easy. And that's why so many organizations struggle with it. We're conditioned to want immediate gratification. We want quick results. And we live in a time where technology makes it possible to kind of have whatever we want, whenever we want it. And so when we're working on issues that take more time, things like culture, we can become pretty impatient. So this is going to take some time, but I promise you it's worth it. So today, I want to give you four things you can do to build an extraordinary culture. And the first one is this. Clarify your purpose. What is your core why? What's the reason why your organization exists? This is the essence or the DNA of your organization. Asking yourself the question, who are you and what are you about? And my guess is you've probably done this at some point or another, but kind of coming back and clarifying your purpose will help give you this foundational block for culture. In the Foresight Building Blocks for Success, that's our framework we use for consulting, we say that this is the purpose block. See, creating your culture must be tied to your purpose. 
It must be an overflow of who you are. So you've got to reconnect with that. You've got to go back and clarify your purpose to make sure you're building your culture on that understanding of purpose. Todd Bolsinger in his book, Canoeing the Mountains, describes it this way. He says that the focused, shared, missional purpose of the church or organization will trump every other competing value. It's more important than my preferences or personal desire. It's more critical than my leadership style experience or past success. It's the grid by which we evaluate every other element in the organization. It's the criterion for determining how we will spend our money, who we will hire and fire, which ministries we will start, and which ones will shut down. It's the tiebreaker in every argument and the principle by which we evaluate every decision we make. Denominational affiliation, mission partnerships, financial commitments, staff decisions, worship styles. All of those questions, the real key question is, does it further our mission? Because the mission trumps all. And so this purpose thing is so core to uh, creating this foundation for you to build culture on. And you can clarify your purpose with a review or refinement of your vision, your mission, and your values. And again, you've probably spent some time. These are probably in a binder somewhere. Maybe they're on the walls. But I want you to go back to them and reconnect with them because it's going to be core to helping you establish culture. And here's how I distinguish those three things. The vision it is, is a description of where you want to go and the impact you want to make. So it really kind of sets that target, that vision of where you want to go and the impact you want to make. Mission is a definition of who you are and why you do the work that you do. So vision is, is typically more um, specific to a time period because you're setting that target of the impact you want to make. Sometimes we'll have a, a tangible uh, uh, qualitative component to it. But the mission is a definition of who you are and why you do the work that you do. So it kind of transcends. And then the values are a set of guiding principles that clarify the habits and behaviors that are essential to accomplishing your vision and your mission. So the value starts to get into this culture thing, right? They they're the set of guiding principles that clarify the habits and behaviors that are essential to accomplishing your vision and mission. Remember, I've talked before about how values times behavior equals culture. So here's where you start getting at that. And the values definition is core uh, for creating culture because values ultimately define your priorities, right? They help you kind of define what to focus on when. When you define your values and clarify the behaviors of your team when they are reflecting those values, you're setting the framework for your culture. So when every person on the team is behaving in congruence with your values, you will see a consistency in your culture. So that's why I want you to go back to clarifying your purpose is just relook at that vision, that mission, and then most importantly, those values, and make sure that you're building culture in alignment with that sense of purpose. Number two, create common language. So it's one thing to write your values. It's another thing to create language that is memorable and it reflects your culture. If your values are words like excellence and integrity, which are great things, I want to challenge you that it's time to go back to the drawing board. So those are the values of nearly every organization, excellence, integrity, character, you know, you fill in the blank. 
but there's nothing memorable or distinctive about them. So uh, these might actually, these words might be the essence of the value that you want to get at, right? So it's not that that value is bad, a value of excellence or integrity. Those are really, really good things. It's just that you have to create language that is meaningful to your team and helps them really internalize that value that gives it kind of character that's specific to your organization. So here's a hint. Your values shouldn't make sense to someone outside your organization, right? Your values shouldn't make sense. They shouldn't just immediately get it because it's going to be kind of insider language. This is the chance to have kind of insider language. You know, often we're, we're on our marketing and our outreach, we're trying to create language that people connect and understand what we do. Well, this is a time where the language for your values is most important to the people within your team. And so it can, it can be insider language. It's even better when there's a story behind the value that becomes something of a legend in your culture. So let me give you an example. When I worked at Crosspoint Church in Nashville, our first draft of our staff values included the value of collaborative communication. We specifically chose this value because we needed to increase our communication efforts across the team. We had people serving at various campuses. We had grown really rapidly. And so we had people kind of scattered all over the area in different uh, office spaces, et cetera. And communication was suffering because of it. So we came up with this phrase, collaborative communication. And while it was a value that was really important to us, no one on the team was particularly excited about it. It was kind of a corporate-sounding snoozer, right? And so uh, recognizing that this was still something that was super important to us as a team, but I needed to find a better way to communicate it, in one of our staff meetings, um, I tried to express the importance of the value through a story. So one of the things that all of our staff knew and I think appreciated about me is that I'm a bit of a fast, efficient driver. Like, I like to get places efficiently and as quickly as possible. And I pride myself in finding the fastest route anywhere I'm going. So as a team, if we were, like, headed to lunch or a meeting, the staff kind of jockeyed to ride with me because they knew that I would get us there first. So particularly if this was, like, a staff lunch thing, you know, get in the car with Jenny because we're going to get there first, which means we get the best seat, which means we get fed first, which are all priorities. And by the way, I'm a bit competitive. So I like to drive fast. I like to drive efficiently. So in reminding them of my driving habits, I asked them if they noticed that although I drive fast, I always use my turn signal. And a couple of them nodded and thought about it for a minute. But I went on to share how this simple discipline ensures that I'm communicating well to the other drivers around me. And when you're moving rather fast, good communication becomes all the more critical, right? So this was what I needed them to embrace as a team. In a fast-moving, fast-growing organization, we all had to be disciplined to communicate well to one another so that we could anticipate what each other is doing and avoid unnecessary problems or crashes. So the story helped everyone grasp the importance of this value, and we immediately all agreed to change the language. We were like, okay, collaborative communication doesn't feel like us. It's kind of stuffy, but we're going to use the phrase, use your blinker. Use your blinker was a memorable phrase. It was tied to a story, and it made it that much more meaningful to all of us, and it quickly became core to our language and our culture. And to this day, I will still get emails from some of that team 
the subject line will say, I'm using my blinker, uh, telling me that they're like, hey, I have something fun or important to communicate to you. So creating memorable or sticky language gives your values greater life and helps them have a better chance of really becoming core to your team. The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to Executive Minds, where we help ambitious professionals like you convert potential into high performance so you can grow your career. I'm Kevin B. Jennings, the host and one of the founding mentors here at Executive Minds, along with entrepreneur, author, and speaker Jeff Henderson and Chick-fil-A executives Shane Benson and David Farmer. In every episode, you'll get principles, strategies, and tools from experienced and emerging leaders. Our guests have maximized their potential to do things like launch ideas, lead teams, build businesses, improve communities, and ultimately make a difference in others' lives. Within the Art of Leadership Network, the Executive Minds podcast focuses on executive leadership, entrepreneurship, management, productivity, and professional development. See, we hope to give leaders advice that's been proven to work. So experienced leaders have a place to improve self-leadership and a resource to share with their team members to support their growth. And so emerging leaders are empowered with what often feels like the hidden strategies of top performing leaders. And hopefully they can grow their career with healthier practices. In this excerpt from episode 125 of the Executive Minds podcast, you'll meet two of our founding mentors, David Farmer and Shane Benson. As I said a moment ago, both of these amazing leaders serve as senior vice presidents at Chick-fil-A. And this clip is a great representation of what you can expect from the podcast. It's a balance of principles and practical application. It's also a mix of what I call lighthouse and headlight content. Like the headlights on our car. Sometimes we need information to help us navigate the next 350 feet or the current situation or the very next challenge in our careers. Other times, we need a lighthouse to illuminate 10 to 30 miles ahead of where we are today because we don't know what we don't know. This prepares us for, or at least makes us aware of, what we'll experience before we get there. And in this episode, David and Shane are discussing what is referred to as an enterprise mindset. To succeed professionally, even the most driven, hardworking people must eventually learn doing your job well is rarely enough to help you grow and progress within an organization. Believing your work stops when your assignments or projects are complete, limits your vision and therefore your impact. I believe that the transition from a go-getter to a difference maker requires that you elevate your thinking and adopt an enterprise mindset to understand and maximize your contribution to the organization's goals, 
mission, and vision. David and Shane are going to introduce you to the importance of an enterprise mindset and a few ways you can practice it every day. Apply what you learn and your influence and impact will grow. You can hear the entire episode and access a summary of the episode by visiting executiveminds.co forward slash 125. That's executiveminds.co forward slash 125. And if you want to accelerate your professional growth, we have a great free resource for you. It's called Rocket Fuel, and it's our professional development planning guide covering 10 ways you can intentionally grow yourself. Now, you can download Rocket Fuel right now and accelerate your growth by just texting the phrase Executive Minds to one 844-454-4017. That's the phrase, Executive Minds. Make sure you keep a space between the words. And you send that to 1-844-454-4017. And of course, if you enjoy what you hear, please subscribe to Executive Minds, as well as the other amazing podcasts in the Art of Leadership Network wherever you enjoy your podcasts. We look forward to helping you grow on the go and converting your potential into high performance so you can grow your career. Today, we're going to talk about how you think about not only your business or the enterprise, but how you think about your work. And you go, well, well what's the difference? So Shane, I'm just going to ask you, what is the difference? If I say, what's the difference between thinking about uh, your work and thinking about the business. Well, I think for most of us, and in, intuitively, it's the difference between working on specific work related to maybe your department, your sub-department, versus thinking about or working on work that collectively helps the organization or the enterprise. And so oftentimes what I have found, and I think many of us have found, is if you're not careful, you get those those like blinders on where you're really focused, you're going hard after what it is that you're responsible for. But if you don't take a second and pull up or a couple moments to pull up and think about how that's going to impact the enterprise, that, that can hurt. That can actually hurt the enterprise, but also can actually, you know, maybe hold you back as a leader and where you're trying to go if you're not thinking about the collective whole and you're just focused on your individual piece of that. Yeah, I want to talk about an application in, in two scenarios. One is you're part of a larger organization, and we, we like to talk about how we're reaching out to intrapreneurs, which we define as people that are really working to bring about change and transformation in the context of a, an, an existing organization, maybe a longer, excuse me, a larger one. So you've got to think about your role in this large organization, but also pull up and think about the business at, as a whole if you really, really want to add value. But I think it applies if you're an entrepreneur as well. You buy that? Oh, absolutely. I buy that. And I think it it translates not only to you if, let's say, you've, you've just started and it's you and maybe a, a couple other people, but if you don't every so often pull up and think about the greater enterprise and where you're trying to go and what objective you're trying to reach collectively, you may get lost in the weeds on what you're working on individually. Yeah. Let's let's say I've launched a photography business and I'm super passionate about photography. 
great. You you want to geek out on all things related to photography, but at some point, if you're going to thrive, you do have to think about the business, and that may not always be as, as exciting or even in your sweet spot, but it's going to be important if you're going to stay healthy and grow and thrive. I mean, and this is one of those topics that we often get questions about. You know, um, I've got a responsibility, I've got a task or a job to do, and remind me what I need to do to think about the enterprise a little bit more and why is that important? Um, because you, if you're if you're left if we're left to our own devices, we like crank out our work, we clock out, and we go home. What we're going to encourage you to do is just think a little bit more about how your work translates or connects to the overall enterprise, and we think by doing that, it can actually help you be more successful. Yep. All right. So as some of our listeners may know, Shane and I actually both work with Chick-fil-A in different roles. And Shane has a really unique role. Part of his responsibility is he leads organizational planning for the entire business, our, our support center, where we support all of our restaurant operators. And that's become a, a interesting and challenging role because fortunately, we're experiencing a lot of growth right now. With the growth comes challenges. We love those kind of challenges, but they're challenges nonetheless. So one of the things Shane is doing is he's trying to help leadership within the organization um, elevate our own thinking so that we can be good leaders. And to that end, just recently, you took a lot of our leadership team up to Harvard, and we had a three-day experience at the Harvard Business School where we had to get in the classroom, go through a number of cases— I even had a cold called. That's right. Cold call is when you don't raise your hand, the uh, professor. These, <laughs> these are, let me just say. These when you are, have that deer in the headlights look that you might remember from college and the professor calls on you, that's what a cold call is. Yeah. And these were awesome professors. Yeah, they were awesome. Unbelievable. So I even, you can go to the Launch University Instagram page and see a picture that I took and we posted of Shane at, at the head of the class helping to lead conversation at Harvard Business School. So Dude, you're legit. That didn't last long. It did not last long. I was quickly pulled off stage. But that kind of got us thinking about this topic because while we were up there, we were talking about, in the Chick-fil-A context, having an enterprise mindset. How do we elevate our own thinking? So talk a little bit about what even led you and your team to think, oh, we we, got to go there. Well, you know, I, I think first and foremost, I mean, humbly, this happens to all of us. And when you're you're vested in the work that you're doing, and it's important work that you're doing. Every so often, it's important to pull your head up and look across the entire business or organization that you're working with and ask the question, okay, how am I helping the greater organization? And so that really was the experience that we try to create at uh, Harvard Business School. And it was really fundamentally around this question around as each of us as leaders, how are we helping the overall organization? And are we talking about that enough? So one of the kind, there were a lot of things that we learned. I mean, we spent a good amount of time talking about a variety of topics, but one that stuck out to me was this idea around T-shaped leadership. And so I want you to think about a T and I want you to think about the horizontal axis of that T being, think broad. That's the, the broad Um, scope of the business. That would represent the enterprise. And really what that represents is our willingness to reach out across departments, to reach out across influencers and have more conversation around how is the work that we're doing helping or not helping the organization. So the first thing you need to think about is broad. 
So and, so I got to get out of my lane or my silo and think about the business from a completely different perspective, perhaps. Absolutely. I'm going to give you a very tactical way to think about doing this. So the next time you're in a meeting and somebody asks you to talk about the work that you're working on, take just a second and think about how you might be able to rephrase the question to ask a larger, broader question about how that impacts the enterprise. Because if we're not careful, we actually are brought into meetings to talk about our expertise However, we don't pull up and think about, okay, am I open to listening to a variety of uh, conversations here to really broaden my thinking and have a willingness? Do I have a willingness to reach out and not be so adamant about my initiative or my, my work being at the forefront as much as I am? How is this impacting the whole? Yeah. So this, this bigger idea of being broad, that horizontal T-line being the willingness to reach out. I want you to think about that. And then the vertical line is really this idea of going deep. So it's broad and deep. And deep is really the commitment to getting really good at your craft, the commitment of going deep in your expertise. So I want you to, uh, again, maybe you're in marketing or maybe you're in finance or IT or legal. Your ability to go deep and to understand that subject matter is really, really important. However, if you don't have the combination of the two, you may be lacking as a leader um, and you may you might miss the opportunity to continue to advance in your organization because it's the combination of the two that's really important. Your ability to understand your craft as well as the ability to reach out across the organization and know how your work is going to impact and affect the overall enterprise. So one of my observations is early in a career, you may be a lot more focused on that uh, vertical axis, subject matter expertise, contribution within your your sort of lane. If you're going to grow and add more and more value to the business, though, you've got to get outside of that. And, yep. you, and, and we see that here at Chick-fil-A. Our most senior leaders, they actually spend a portion of their time thinking about the functional area they're asked to, to work in and lead in, but they have to spend an increasing amount of time thinking about the the business holistically, thinking about how they're, like in, in our case, how my work might uh, connect to your work. And that's where you've got to have a lot of give and take, right? It's not just about defending your work. It's thinking about the best combination for the good of the enterprise. Yeah. So bottom line, the concept is go broad and continue to go deep. Willingness to reach out and your commitment to be an expert in your field. The Art of Leadership Network. Hey folks, my name is Christopher Cook and I'm the host of Win Today, which is a podcast all about mental and emotional health as well as spiritual growth. In the clip I'm about to share with you from episode 298 of the podcast, my good friend Jamie Winship joins me once again to talk about how to live fearlessly in your true identity. Jamie's a retired DC police officer who was later recruited by the US State Department for diplomacy work in hostile nations overseas. And of all the conversations I've ever had with Jamie, I'd say this one is cornerstone. In fact, one of the main messages from this conversation is all about understanding why we so easily lean toward behavior modification instead of heart transformation. You guys, transformation will change our lives from the inside out. And as I tell my friends every week here on Win Today, transformation beats self-help 
all day long. Last thing, I want to invite you to receive my free weekly email, Win the Week, which is all about getting under the hood of your heart so that incremental steps toward transformation can be made in your mental and emotional health and, of course, in your spiritual growth. It's a quick win, quick read, no frills weekly email designed to be read and applied in less than five minutes. I simply want to help you grow deeper. So you can go to wintoday.tv to sign up. And right now, here's my conversation with my good friend, Jamie Winship. If many of us have been living inside a false identity for so long that now our true identities are indistinguishable from the false, how do we even recognize the false? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the great question. And um, we, we're so, we, we're raised in the lie, right? We're raised in the lie of self-protection and self-promotion, really based in the deeper lie that there's not enough in the world for everyone. And so scarcity. you got to go, you got, right, yes, the scarcity yeah. mentality, and you got to get your peace. And if you don't get it, God's not going to give it to you. So it's really on you. So you, you grow up with this sense of everything in my life really depends on me at some level. Um, you know, am, am I going to be a good person? Am I going to be a real Christian? Like all this is dependent on my ability to produce. And, and you know, at any level of truth, you have to tell the truth. I'm not going to be able to produce at the level that I think I'm supposed to be. So you have this, you begin with, Everything depends on me, and I'm not going to be enough to do it. I, there's not enough in the world, and I'm certainly not going to be enough to be a great, a perfect parent or a perfect spouse or a perfect whatever witness for Jesus. And yeah, and so you do. You grow up inside this lie, and then your value comes from your rate of production. So my only value in the world is what I can produce for God or other people. And if I can't produce enough, whatever that arbitrary number is, I'm not as valuable as someone who produces more than me. So it's like a no win. And all of us are in this illusion or delusion, and all of us feel the pressure of it and the lie of it deep down inside of us, and it creates conflict inside of us. And so either we just give up or we create these coping mechanisms, these false identities that are all built on self-protection and self-promotion. And it'll never change until... You're, until you start telling the truth. And I didn't know how to tell the truth until someone challenged me. So it's about community. Yeah. It's about being with people who will call out the true. And they're not, it's not accusation or anything like that. It's just, no. right. just tell the truth about what you really believe about yourself. What do you really believe about yourself? And don't be afraid to tell the truth. And most of us believe that we're not good enough. That in, I mean, I, I, I've been doing this with groups even this morning, and it doesn't matter that they're Christian or non-Christian. When you get down to it, they believe that somehow God is distant in certain parts of their life, and it's up to them to be to make things happen, and they can't do it, and it produces fear in them. So yeah, it takes. I think it takes community. It takes a, another person who cares about you with no agenda to say to you, "Hey." We're just going to tell the truth about what we really believe about God, what we really believe about ourselves, and what we really believe about others. Let's truth tell, let's confess, and let's move from there asking God what he wants us to know about who we are and who he is and who others are. Does that open up a commentary on willpower then? In other words, 
when I'm trying to self-protect and self-promote, I am relying on my own strength. Do you have any thoughts about willpower, the limitation of willpower in, in the context of this conversation? Yeah. Well, I've never been able to use willpower. I've never had willpower work for me. No, why not? Um, because, well, because I think the willpower is, is also based in self-protection and self-promotion. It's weird. It's like the willpower is sourced in the lie. And so again, if, if I'm just going to will my way through things, it's interesting because when I, when I talk to especially younger guys and they're talking about, yeah, we get up at seven in the morning and we work out and they have these goal sheets and these, um, you know, then we had a quiet time and, and, you know, then we committed this amount of time to work. My question is, yeah, but who are you? Who are you? Like who's, who's in the weight room? Is it the real you or the false you? Is it, are you, are you doing that because love is motivating you into that? Is it other focus, which is a huge question. Is what I'm is what I'm doing? Is it other focused or is it self focused? Is it for my benefit and my good? Um, and those are those are the truth telling questions we have to ask ourselves. So willpower for me is just I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it, which is I already think I'm not enough. So how all of a sudden am I gonna do it? Right. So I might be able to say, I might be able to, I might say, well, I can make myself stop drinking and I can make myself stop looking at pornography, but I can't make myself love myself. I can't make myself love others. I can't make myself love God. I need, I need the spirit of God at work in me to, you know, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It's not my, it's, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So it's it's a shifting over to, um, I, I like when Paul says in Colossians, he says, I labor according to his power. I labor, so it's not you're off the hook. It's I labor according to his power, which mightily works in me. I love that verse. So what I'm doing is aligning myself with the power of God that's at work in the true me, in the true me. So that means the journey is to really understand who does God say that I am, God? Who do you say that I am? And then in, in his identity for you, then what is, what is God inviting the true you into? And wow, when you know that, you go into it with everything you have. Yeah, you said willpower is sourced in the lie. That is absolutely stunning. What's the lie then? Is the lie that I can do it myself? Yeah. Well, I think it's even deeper than that. The lie is it's all on you. It's worse than I can do it myself. It's like, if you don't do it, you're a failure. That's like, see, that's an identity statement. I am a failure. Um, so I love that, you know, it's just watch Jesus when he, when he, it's that beautiful passage when he does the catch a fish with Peter and Peter says to him, depart from me. <laughs> like he, Jesus is inviting Peter into something and Peter's saying, I can't, not only I can't do it, he's saying, walk away from me. Right. And then he says, why? He tells his identity to Jesus. I am, I am a sinful man. That's his identity. 
I am the one that will fall short. I am the one that will fail. I am the one that doesn't know who I am. I am that one. So to walk away from me as if Jesus is calling him in his willpower to follow Jesus. He's, you know, it's like, if you can do this, you can follow me. And then Peter is pretty much saying, I can't, so walk away. And, and Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. I love that answer. It's not like, oh, you're not sinful. You're a good guy. You're, he just says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what? Of the, of the false things that you believe about yourself. They're not true. Then he's, follow me and I will make you to become. There it is. Follow me. I'm inviting you and I will make you to become fishers of men. Um, not follow me and do the best you can. Try to, as hard as you can. Set good goals and objectives. Follow me and I will make you to become. <clears throat> and so then what you're doing is fixing your eyes on Jesus, which is the discipline. Fixing my eyes on Jesus, who is the author. He's the one that wrote this thing. And the finisher and the perfecter of my faith. He's the both the beginning and the end of it. So the goal isn't how hard can I try, it's how much can I abide in him, which is a will, is a decision. I will abide, I will abide, and then I labor according to his power, right? I, I'm, I'm going to stay attached to the vine, but the vine is what feeds me. So it's, so it's an invitation, and it's what we're doing is accepting the invitation to participate in what God is inviting us into, but not making it happen. Well, once again, all of those shows are part of the Art of Leadership Network, a network that we started, well, under a year ago, but these are leaders we trust and shows that we believe in, and we wanted to bring you a sampler of all of them. Hopefully, you learned something along the way, and maybe you found one or two podcasts you want to start subscribing to for 2023. The easy way to do that, obviously, is just go to the Art of Leadership Network podcast network, wherever you find podcasts, or you can go to theartofleadershipnetwork.com find the shows, subscribe from there, and voila, you've got some new listening on your plate. I want to know whether you enjoyed this or not. And if you did, could you let us know? Just send us an email at carrie at carrienewhoff.com or shout us out on social. Uh, I find this really helpful. I've seen a show or two that I listen to do this, and I thought we'd try that with you as well. We're back to our usual format next week. Uh, who have I got? James Clear. We're going to go all atomic on our habits to start off 2023. Here is an excerpt. You don't do a lot of interviews. What is one question you wish people would ask you that nobody ever asks you? Uh, honestly, a lot of what we already talked about. No, most really? people don't ask about how the book happened or how, like, what's going on behind the scenes to to get it launched. And it's sort of interesting because a lot of the core message of Atomic Habits is that the results of success are highly visible and widely discussed, but the process of success is invisible and often hidden from view. And so... We only talk about things, usually, if it's a result. So we go into the backstory of Atomic Habits, too. It's been a lot of fun to do that episode. Also, want to thank our partners, Generis. You can get their free generosity resources and schedule your free coaching call, totally complimentary. Go to generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S dot com slash carry. And Convoy of Hope, you and your church can help provide relief supplies to victims all over the world. Go to convoyofhope.org slash donate. Well, in addition to James Clear, we've got Chris Anderson, Annie F. Downs, 
Mark Sayers, Tim Keller, Andy and Sandra Stanley. Who else have we got? We've got John Mark Comer, Gretchen Rubin, Andy Wood, Erwin McManus, and a lot more. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would love for you to sign up for my brand new newsletter. It's not launched yet, but January 6th, I send out the very first edition of the On The Rise newsletter. It's curated content, the best of what I've found on the internet. Uh, Some stuff that's old, some stuff that's brand new. But if you're looking for a digest to make sense of all the content that's out there, this can be sermon research. This can be just interesting reading for the weekend. But it's stuff that I and my team have found significant. I'd love for you to check it out. You can subscribe at ontherisenewsletter.com. Looking forward to a very, very exciting 2023. Thank you so much for everything this year, record year for the podcast. And I anticipate even greater things in 2023. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Catch you in the new year. And I hope our time together today has helped you identify and break a growth barrier.